this is the Aussie Animal Show on AAA Radio. My name is Rob Armstrong. Welcome to the wildlife. Before we rip into tonight's program, I'd like to point out a couple of small changes to the actual radio site. You may notice that the title on demand for our podcast has now been changed to podcasts. That makes absolute sense. But regular listeners may now notice a small red circle widget down in the bottom right-hand corner. This is a link to a facility that we will be introducing. It's not operative this evening, but will be in action. It links you to Talk To, T-A-W-K, Talk To. This will allow live interaction between the listener and the host of the program, and on occasions when available, also the interviewee. I hope you take advantage of this facility at AAA Radio. We're always trying to keep up with the latest. At AAA Radio, we want you to enjoy the experience, and many people would love to interact with our programs. We start tonight's program with a, I'll call it a roundup on duck season. The Victorian duck season has finished for 2022, but on Facebook there's a group called Regional Victorians Opposed to Duck Shooting. This group are just regular Victorians, live in a rural region, and their lives, their businesses, are impacted by the annual duck shoot. We'll be speaking to two of these regional Victorians tonight. Let's start with May, who is down in the most beautiful part of Victoria, in the Venus Bay area. May, can you tell us how duck shooting has impacted on you and your lifestyle? Well, I've lived in regional Victoria for most of my life, and so I've had the opportunity to experience a beautiful bushland, to get to know it as a teenager. I used to ride my horses out in the bush, had lots of freedom, and contact with nature. So as an adult, I live at Venus Bay, which is a really beautiful peninsula. It has an inlet and a waterway from the Tarwin River on one side of the peninsula and the striking 26 kilometre Venus Bay Beach on the other side. It's a very well known, significant bird site. It has a lot of migratory birds and a very diverse bird population. We've got wetland birds, we've got bushland birds, seabirds and also quite a lot of migratory species coming through this peninsula because we have salt marsh wetlands out on the Anderson Inlet side which are of course very important feeding grounds for many migratory species. So myself and local members of the Venus Bay Peninsula area have for many years thought that this should be a Ramsar protected site or it should be a protected site. It's known as an important bird area by BirdLife Australia and it has a high visitation of visitors who come here for bird watching. I've lived here since early 80s, but I was working away for much of that time in corporate positions and then returned in 2006 and established a small business, Venus Bay Eco Retreat, which is set up, um, my property is a trust for nature conservation property. It's a beautiful Banksia woodland that I have put under conservation trust in perpetuity with Trust for Nature. And the back section of the property that butts onto the inlet includes a section of the wetlands. My little business um, has been operating as a really attractive holiday tourism accommodation retreat just for one very small group of people. It's just got one cottage. I've got my house and my studio on the same place. I'm a visual artist. And the woodland, the bird life, the whole environment is just the most enchanting, wonderful experience to live in. So I have enjoyed sharing that with my guests and visitors. So getting around to answering your question is how has duck shooting impacted me? Until recently, we didn't have very much impact of duck shooting on Anderson Inlet and the wetlands behind me because they weren't open for duck shooting. But in the last few years, and particularly in this last season, All of Anderson Inlet wetlands have been opened up for duck shooting. This has had a devastating impact on me personally 
and also on my business. I actually closed my business for the last section of the duck hunting season this year because I couldn't recommend that my guests could walk safely around in the woodlands and the wetlands and all of the walking trails that abut the Anderson Inlet with any level of safety with duck shooters there participating. Myself and neighbours have been really traumatised by what we've seen happening to the wildlife here and especially the duck shooting, which we hadn't had such a strong impact from before, this year we've had the full gamut of the four months just hearing shots all the time, particularly on the weekends. The uh, Labor Day long weekend was really atrocious. And we've also had a couple of incidents that have compounded that experience for us. The fact that kangaroo shooting has also started to happen on our peninsula during this same time. So we've had the two lots of wildlife shooting occurring concurrently on this beautiful peninsula, which is home to species, diverse wildlife, tourism potential, which is already very well established as a nature and ecotourism destination. So it's just enormously distressing. I've been under enormous personal strain and stress because of it. I've pushed back to try and find out why this is happening. And of course, like many, I've confronted this almost impenetrable bureaucracy that, in my view, seems deliberately set up by the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning and Game Management Authority to make any kind of information available to the public as difficult to find as possible. Yeah, so it took me, for example, three weeks to be able to speak to someone in Dalwerp about a mistake that they'd made with their wetlands mapping would you explain that to us? Because that, that, that's ab- absolutely horrific what happened. Yes, it was a real distressing time for me. I can't actually access this app. It's called the More to Explore app. So, you know, why taxpayers' money is being used to develop these expensive resources to support the small number of people who want to go duck shooting is another question that needs to be raised. However, what the More to Explore app is, is a map being developed by Delwip and the Game Management Authority, mostly through Delwip, that supports duck hunters to find more places to go duck hunting. Now, why they need an app to support them with that when there are already thousands of waterways open for duck hunting in Victoria is beyond my imagination. Also, much of the information is available through Google Maps but it's all been put together in one convenient app to support duck shooters and make it easy for them to go out and shoot our ducks. So one of the layers in this app is a wetlands layer. And when you turn on the wetlands layer, it includes all of the wetlands in the landscape. It doesn't differentiate between privately owned land, public land, land that might be available for duck shooting, whatever. It's just a broad general map of wetlands. But because it's included on the hunting app, it can very easily be mistaken that that's where you're allowed to go and shoot. And that's what occurred here because my wet, the wetland that's in the back of my property, which is under Conservation Trust, was included in the wetlands mapping. And as soon as you go onto the app and look at that app, it looks like it's available for hunting, which it's not. You know, so... When I finally got through to speak with the mapping consultant in Dalwip, he admitted that this had been causing problems and confusion in other parts of Victoria as well. Immediately I said, well, why not just turn off that layer? And of course, being a big bureaucracy that it is, he said, it's not my decision to make. It's going to take weeks to sort that out. We're going to have to go through. I said, well, just turn it off in the short term while you're making a final decision about whether you include it in the app in the future. But it was very frustrating and eventually I did get a result that the app was turned off as an automatic layer and then fortunately a couple of weeks later um, the duck season actually ended and it was a big sigh of relief for me and many of my neighbours and everyone in this community who had been impacted this year by the shooting. I have to admit that uh, the inlet, I always considered that was a protected area and that shooting would not be allowed down there at Anderson Inlet. 
but it seems as if the department knows better. And, of course, they're there to service their clients, and their opinion is their clients are the duck shooters, not the waterfowl of Victoria. All the, all the citizens of Victoria are their clients. And also, just in respond to that, yep. our government is not a corporate business. To say that they're responding to clients sounds like you're responding to, you know, maybe you know, shareholders' requests or customer requests or whatever. It's a very corporatized label for what really are the people of Victoria that our governments represent. We're not clients, we're, we're citizens. And each of us operates in a democracy or what we call a democracy. So one of the things that I think is particularly galling about the duck shooting, water bird shooting that's going on, I call it water bird shooting because it's not just confined to ducks it's actually killing and damaging and traumatizing all of our water birds however this is not a democratic situation it's less than half a percent i think it is of victoria's population agree with duck hunting and want to go duck hunting over 90 percent of people don't want to see it happen they want their birds protected so how is it that our governments that are elected to represent the people in general can say that they represent their clients by protecting a very small percentage of shooters. It's really just not acceptable that that's a pushback by them. And we are not clients. We are citizens. And we're citizens who care about our wildlife and we want to see it thriving and continuing. We want to see thriving ecosystems, biodiversity abundance. We want to see climate resilience. And we need our governments to be stepping up and really listening to what people are saying about this. You operate an ecotourism retreat. You offer yes. peace sanctuary, love of the environment. I'm pretty darn sure that duck shooting, or as you said, water bird shooting, uh, because I do agree with you, my first rescue was of a pelican. Now, how someone could mistake a pelican for a duck, I don't know, but uh, collateral damage, I think they call it. It's difficult for you to lose business for a quarter of a year. They say duck shooting brings money into rural Victoria. Ecotourism and nature tourism are great models because they attract visitors all year round. They're not only attracting visitors during the holiday seasons. In fact, you get really good visitation in what they call the off-peak or shoulder periods because a lot of the travellers that are seeking ecotourism and nature tourism experiences are wanting to be away from major crowds. So your locations become much more attractive for them outside of the main holiday seasons. So that means that you get visitation nearly all year round. It's a really strong, supportable model. And most important of all, ecotourism and nature tourism give the opportunity for visitors to come and be present in the landscapes without causing harm to where they are. Visitors who are under ecotourism and nature tourism are also far more receptive to education about the wildlife and the places that they are visiting. In fact, they're seeking that from their operators. And so this is a really excellent model going forward into the future that we face together with climate change and so many losses in biodiversity that we're facing. The ecotourism, nature tourism model is an absolute winner for all, all small businesses or any business that works with it because it has those education, do no harm, smaller, more diverse interests at heart in its whole business model. It's more like the holistic business model that we're hoping to have in our future economy. So definitely it's incompatible with shooting. It's incompatible with any kind of wildlife damage, landscape damage, any kind of destruction that's going on to the natural world because people are coming to experience and enjoy that diversity and the beauty and extraordinary uh, diversity that we have within our wildlife, birds and animals in Australia. Now, my little business is very small and uh, it's a tiny business and I'm just a solo operator, but the interest that it has drawn from international visitors to come and see our wildlife has been something that's very heartening for me and something that I love to share with international visitors because they are absolutely overwhelmed by the beauty and the incredible, uh, you know, just amazingness, 
it's about the only word I can say, how amazing they are, is our wildlife and birds. I've had visitors checking in who've burst into tears seeing their first kangaroo because they've been so overwhelmed and with joy just to see these animals, you know. Mm. They are extraordinary. They belong here. They've been here well before we were. We need to learn how to live with them and to support them to thrive. You know, we have only got things to benefit by doing that. And so there is absolutely no place for any kind of wildlife damage, duck shooting, duck hunting in today's world. It's an outdated, patriarchal, cruel activity, which has no place in the modern world. There's no need to hunt for food. It is just absolutely wrong that it continues. You've faced the double whammy. On top of that, I imagine the last thing an international visitor to your little retreat down there at Venus Bay would like to see is the cut-off paws and heads of kangaroos after a shoot has been through. Absolutely, Rob. And this is something that our community has just been completely horrified by over this last um, summer season. The kangaroo harvesting, commercial harvesting, started on nearby farms here in early to mid-December last year and then continued right through January, February, March, April. Around May, we finally were able to stop it in one of the nearby farms just by putting some public pressure on the farmer who had agreed to let the shooters in. But during that time, we had months of trauma for our residents and also our visitors. I remember seeing bits of kangaroos all over the main road. I've seen shooters' lights going on at night. We've got our wildlife carers and our you know, volunteer, our conservation volunteers, all completely upset and traumatised by what was going on with the kangaroo shooting. And with our small peninsula here, we can't find an estimate of how many kangaroos have been taken because that's all not available to the, to the public in general. It should be. We all have an interest in wildlife populations. Why is it only shooters and Delwip who know how many animals have been taken? However, we did get a verbal estimate from one of the shooters, and he may have been bragging, but he said that at least 700 animals have been taken from Venus Bay Peninsula so far. 700? They're taking 700 animals, and they're targeting large adult kangaroos taking 700 out of the population of eastern greys that are here is really devastating to the resilience of that population for going forward in the future and that 700 would not have included um they shoot an average of 30 to 40 percent females which all have an impound yes. joey and an at foot joey yes. absolutely yeah. shocking numbers and the thing that I noticed here with this double onslaught going on, it felt like being in a war zone. Honestly, it was so distressing with both the duck shooting and the kangaroo shooting occurring. But here at my, my place, kangaroos that have lived quietly and in harmony with me here in the landscape, I've been here for 40 years, that could be grazing just outside my window. Every time I opened a door, they'd run off. They were absolutely terrified of seeing a human being. And that's lasted for several months. They're just starting to calm down now. And mostly all that I'm seeing now is young females with young joeys. So a lot of the large alpha males, the really large females, particularly the, the big breeding males, have been taken and, har and so they call harvested. I say oh, slaughtered. Yeah. You know? May, yeah. look, they stand their ground to protect the mob. And they're the yes. first shot, those big yeah. males. They stand there and say... So, keep back i'm protecting my family they stand there and get blasted away uh, listen yeah actually i feel for you i i know your region down there venus bay is a beautiful spot anderson inlet absolutely yes. wonderful oh, yes. I, I just can't yep. believe that there's any need no no i'm sorry I, I just fell into the trap there myself i know there is no need to control kangaroo numbers that's a fallacy that's a myth used by the industry but i Absolutely just don't is, believe you know? that the commercial industry has moved into anderson in inlet and venus bay well it's been very shocking for us too rob and you know a lot of people are not aware of it because it's happening at night it's all you know secret night stuff yep um, but it's definitely happening and one of the frustrating things for me is that you know we're at a point 
globally where we really need to be looking at holistic agriculture, which works in um, harmony with nature and not against it. That um, occurs, that's important in so many ways, use of chemicals, you know, the way that we clear land, um, the way that we grow our food crops. We really have to be looking at a more holistic agriculture model. Exactly. And this is just basically blaming kangaroos for what has been 200 years of extremely poor land management. Now, we've got excess amounts of rabbits. We've got chemicals going onto the land. We've got overgrazing. We've got wetlands being reclaimed as grazing paddocks, which should never have been reclaimed down here. And we're blaming kangaroos for competing with grass, with graziers in this scenario. Like We just couldn't get it any more wrong if we set to try to create series of events that would just be a complete disaster. Well, you know, that's what we've done. And the thing that I find most distressing personally is that it's sanctioned by our government. It's legal. You know, I've read the kangaroo management plan and I cannot believe that people sat down around a table and signed off on that plan. Because when we first heard about the kangaroos being killed in the cruel way that they are, and when we found the evidence of that with the kangaroo parts being strewn across the landscape, I looked further and deeper into the management plan to see if any rules had been broken down here. And to my absolute astonishment, I found that all of this was legal. And I rang people within the department and said, why is it, do you know that this is happening, that this is what's occurring, thinking that this has been a breach of protocol, you know, this has been a breach of law. And they just told me that's all fine, that that's what's allowed to happen. They even said it's a more sustainable way to, to deal with the carcasses than it is to leave them on the ground whole. I'm going, what? You've actually signed off on this? You know, I just, I, I just find it so difficult to believe that our leaders and governments are sanctioning this kind of activity. And what kind of society are we living in that legalises this, encourages it, supports it through taxpayer money, gives it priority over all other forms of regional business and well-being, and sanctions this as, a, as something which is okay to do? I mean, it's just so wrong on so many levels. The other thing that makes it absolutely unbelievable is that they initiated a trial in 2014 of the pet food industry kangaroo killing here in Victoria. And in 2018, they did a review, uh, the government. So in other words, public funded review of yes. the industry. And the review said, don't go ahead. It's going to lead to the destruction of the species in Victoria. And so what did the government do? Ignored their own advice and went ahead. I, I really struggle to try. I, I cannot understand what's going on here. The only thing that comes to my mind when we have such blatant arrogance going on is that there must be some corruption going on underneath there. We need an end to this colonial arrogance over our landscape because that's how I see it. It's an imposition yep. of the idea that everything is here for our exploitation rather than our respect. And we need to look at the opportunities that are here in our regional areas and be making the most of them. And those opportunities are for so multiple and they do not include killing our wildlife and destroying our landscapes and our and, you know, just damaging businesses and local communities. You know, there's a lot of discussion about mental health now and people's well-being. And I th it's good that that's being discussed and brought up. But I feel there's a, a section missing in that discussion. And that is reluctance of our government bodies to take on board what the communities are telling them about the need to restore landscapes, look after biodiversity, attend to climate change. We see it in, right in front of us, you know, but our politicians seem to have missed the gap, you know, about this message. I don't know how they can be missing this message because it's been put forward very strongly, not just by many people, you know, look at the climate strikes, you know, the the school strikes for climate, you know, look at the way people voted in the last election. Look at all of the science and the people that are telling us that this is the kind of action that we need to be taking. Yet there still seems to be an enormous gap between action and rhetoric. 
within the government. And to me, that is one of the most distressing things for the community to be seeing. Because what we are seeing is the continuation of business as usual with very minor adjustments that might go slightly towards trying to appease you know, the situation, but no real committed action towards that change that's needed. Now, it's hard to make that change. It's, it needs it's strong change. It needs very strong leaders to do it. But it's absolutely important that we do it because that's what's creating a lot of the depression amongst people and anxiety is knowing we're losing our natural environment, our biodiversity, our wildlife that we love, and we have to fight our government to try and stop this from occurring. I look forward to the day when we no longer have to fight our government to have our landscapes and our environment and our biodiversity looked after. It should be bipartisan. It should be a no-brainer. should be embedded into all of our actions as a first priority for what we do. Until we start doing that, we're going to continue to lose it. Now we're speaking with Elizabeth, also from the South Gippy area, whose life is certainly impacted by the actions of duck shooters. Elizabeth, can you tell us how the duck shooting season impacts you in your lifestyle? Well, we own a lifestyle property which has frontage to a wetlands. It's about 30 acres. We, our neighbour runs his um, stock there just to chew the grass down. Most of it has been cleared in the past, but there is some natural vegetation along the foreshore that... Um, we sort of try and uh, leave reserved for wildlife. And, yeah, I guess on leading up to dark season, we make sure all the stock is removed from the property. In the past, they have been spooked and um, run through fences and all sorts of things, uh, particularly the calves. So we try and get them off the property before duck season. In the past, we've also relocated ourselves and our pets off the property to another dwelling for the duration of duck season because our dogs um, are petrified of the guns and um, take off and, and take, can take us days to find them again. However, we're, we're now spending more time there, living there permanently, and it's not an option for us to move off property. So we try and lock the dogs up beforehand, but... It doesn't always work because, oh, well, in this this duck season, there was shooting occurring well before the, you know, legal time for it to start. So we hadn't had the animals locked up. And is that a common occurrence in your area, early shooting? Yeah, look, there doesn't seem to be much um, monitoring of it at all. Uh, so I, I don't think, yeah, it bothers the shooters when they shoot. And when it, like I have reported it, but, uh, you know, nothing's ever done about it. So, yeah, so it caught us a bit by surprise on opening weekend because it was, you know, I think they were supposed to start an extra half an hour later. Some Something about gives them half an hour practice to identify birds. Or <laughs> yeah, so that does, yeah, affect us a, a bit. It's also pretty distressing for us because during the year we do like to observe the wildlife and... Uh, watch them go about raising their families and their little ones and it's a bit distressing for us to see them being uh, killed um, and injured they wash up on our on our foreshore and yeah it's pretty distressing that's sort of one reason that we moved off the property during duck season in the past is just, I just find it too upsetting I wish I could get out there and help them but I just I just get too upset when I when I see it. Unless people have been out there and experienced the shoot, on this program we've had Laurie Levy say, look, it's an activity based on cruelty and violence. And mm -hmm. I'm afraid I, I can't disagree with him. Mm. Hardly seems to fit in with the lifestyle you're trying to lead down there. <laughs> no, it doesn't at all. It's a very, uh, you know, at other times of the year, it's very peaceful, beautiful bird life. You know, the natural beauty of the area is amazing. And uh, other times of year, you know, people will canoe around the foreshore and bird watchers come to the area. So it is a bit, yeah, it doesn't sort of seem to go in sync with the area when uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's sort of opening opening weekend, we sort of woke up feeling like we were in um, perhaps 
Ukraine. Mm. Um, it was really only opening weekend that there seemed to be a bit of a free-for-all going. As I mentioned before, they're allowed to shoot and then sort of continued through the day. And then late at night, there was um, shots over that on that week opening weekend, um, sort of midnight. <laughs> and then I think it was it sort of tapered off, was a bit quieter until about Anzac Day um, and Anzac morning. There was quite a few bit of shooting, which... You know, at dawn on Anzac Day, I thought that was a little bit ordinary myself. I know, I know my neighbour has um, post-traumatic stress from his time in the war. I can't imagine that would be all that um, nice for him on dawn on Anzac Day. And then it's sort of the final weekend of the um, season that they seem to try and get a last-ditch effort in to um, shoot again. So, yeah, it sort of comes in big fits and spurts and then and then... For the rest of the time, it sort of quietens down a bit, apart from the odd one getting around. But one shot's enough to, you know, scare the dogs away. It's not exactly what you signed up for. But then again, yeah. look, uh, we'll identify your area. You're from the Gippsland region. Yes. And, yeah. and I know your region there. I uh, uh, Heading down towards the coast, spent many uh, uh, a miss, uh, weekend of my misspent youth in that area. Uh, <laughs> But never with a gun in my hands. No. It's a, a beautiful area, um, yeah. surf, fishing, you know, there's activities for everyone. And one of the things about the supporters of a duck shooting season continually say is that duck shooters bring financial benefit to regional Victoria. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well... I think it'd be very minimal what came in. Yeah, I, I believe they just bring in their tents and um, pitch their tents and pack up and leave. They might buy a bit of petrol, I suppose, but uh, they certainly don't go to the cafes and the gift shops and that sort of thing. And uh, you can see, you know, they've been camping because they leave their rubbish behind. It washes up. Yeah. So personally, I, I don't think it brings a lot. Yeah, but I have no proof of that other than what I've just observed myself. I certainly don't see them at the local, you know, establishments. don't see them dining out or using their tourist facilities. Yeah, they're not there for tourist activities. They're, they're there no. to shoot. Yeah. yeah, and they do bring everything with them fully self-contained. Um, mm. they, even the local pubs complain, you know, I mean... Mm. And they can buy it in bulk and bring it with them. That food, drink, and everything. Yeah, mm. uh, Elizabeth, your region down there has um, long been—I won't say a mecca—but very popular with duck shooters. Even when duck numbers are ridiculously low, you still get groups of shooters down in your area going out for the main weekends of the season. Surely. By now, we think that ecotourism should be taking over and supporting these regional areas. Your area is absolutely beautiful, and I'm sorry that you have to put up with uh, a bunch of hooligans coming in from the city and blowing the hell out of your wildlife. Yes, it's interesting you mentioned the ecotourism. That's certainly a big focus of our area moving forward. I know that the um, local council just held a bit of a forum with some ecotourism specialists to help the local um, tourist operators, you know, market and, you know, learn how they can make this place, you know, attractive to the, um, to the people who want to appreciate the, the natural beauty. There's also, you know, um, a couple of developments that are happening locally for to encourage the ecotourism. Yeah, so I think that's where the future lies, particularly as we're getting smarter about our environment and there seems to be a lot more understanding that we need to start looking after it, otherwise it's going to disappear. Right down the eastern seaboard, not just target species of ducks, but birds in general uh populations are crashing we need to do something and recreational shooting of water birds is n no way can be supported in the 21st century yeah uh, what's the saying at you know at first do no harm so if at least we can do to try and help is just not do further damage and nature has a way of sort of repairing itself but that's not going to happen if we keep sort of setting it back the big change has been the fact that regional Victorians are coming out 
in opposition to duck shooting. For mm. a long time, it's been almost an argument of country versus city. The country support <laughs> duck shooting, the city is against yeah. it. Yeah, that's, that's so far from the truth. Yeah, yes, that's right. That's that's just a, yeah, someone made that up. It, it was know. a good story at the time. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't affect the people in the city, you know. It affects the people who live in the areas, you know, the... That's that's the people who are disadvantaged by it. It only affects the city people if they want to go to holiday in that area and don't really want to be holidaying amongst gunfire. Well, it, it does take, you know, one quarter of the year is being mm. removed from uh, tourism. Mm. Unless you're there to duck, uh, to duck shoot, you really don't want to go to a beautiful lake with surrounded by magnificent trees with a coastal view in the background and be surrounded by dead bodies, beer cans and empty shotgun cartridges. No, that's right. I I just think it's um it's one of those activities that you know, we've become smarter now and it and it's it's a you know, it's it's something that has to be phased out just like a lot of things we're realizing aren't good for the environment that we need to phase out yeah it's it's it doesn't fit with modern day theories thank goodness it's over for another year and with the low numbers of shooters out this year let's just hope it's the last duck shooting season in victoria I'm chatting with Deborah Tabard from the Australian Koala Foundation. Just this week, Deborah's organisation has put out a press release demanding instant action on koalas. They're proposing a Koala Protection Act. Deborah, I was speaking with Kate Furman, New South Wales Greens MP, today about the Great Koala National Park, and the word she used was urgency. Do you agree it's an urgent situation for our koalas? Well, the Australian Koala Foundation is calling for better legislation because we absolutely think it's urgent in that we were involved in a Senate inquiry in 2011. It was listed as vulnerable to extinction in Queensland, New South Wales, ACT, not South Australia and Victoria. And then 10 years later, recovery plan isn't still written, or even if it is, it might be a draft. And how can anyway say the laws work when it went from vulnerable to endangered after it was listed, especially a species as famous as this? So, yeah, it, it is urgent. And, you know, I, I know, Kate, I, I did give evidence at the uh, parliamentary hearing that she put on, I think it was in 2018, but it hasn't changed a thing, not a thing. And so the states still go... What frustrates me a little bit, I'll have to say, is why people still have faith in the system. I mean, I just got a an email through where they said the EPA in New South Wales is going to try and get $18 million worth of fines to the loggers. And I was just emailing quickly to my scientists and saying, how can this possibly be economic? You know, and it was in a place called Wild Cattle Creek, which is where I first cut my teeth in 19... 19- 92, it was the first time I was invited into the bush and it's been protected all this time and all they do is just wait and go back in anyway. I just can't understand it. I think we the people are ahead of our system. You know, we know that this is not right. I don't think people would actually believe that in a decade, the recovery plan for the koala after being declared vulnerable, a decade later, there's still nothing finalised. No, and also this new minister, she's my 15th environment minister, you know, in my 33-year career. And in our boardroom every month, and I've had a board meeting every month for those years, we have a koala performance indicator of how many letters I have written to the system and, indeed, how many write back. So I have enormous resilience that just keep, you know, constantly arguing. But it, it is beggars belief that that our ministers don't feel they are obligated even though we have the science and we were the ones who nominated the koala all those years ago it's i'm just hoping this new government is going to really sit up and listen because the people certainly spoke on election day didn't they look you've put forward the koala protection act have you had any response from tanya plibersek as yet 
No, she's giving a state of the environment report at the press club next week. And so I've, I've written to her, I've sent the act to her, but I did send it to all parliamentarians in 2019, 2016. Really, our legislation scares them because it actually means that every single piece of legislation in Australia, in my view, doesn't work, which is why we went to the trouble of writing one. And, and we've even had some of the lawyers who wrote it encouraging us to water it down. And I won't. Because the thing is, what's the point? And it's simple because it just basically says you can't cut the trees down unless you prove your activity is benign. And that's going to put the burden of proof on the system rather than us, the people, having to constantly become environmental scientists and water experts and everything. I mean, I've just watched too many people get so sick and exhausted from fights they never win. And the other key thing in the Act is it would not allow a permit to take. And a permit to take means that you can accidentally kill things. And so industry, loggers, coal miners, gas keys, they're not going to be happy with that. So I think I feel now that this is the I feel the strongest voice I've ever had to tell you the truth because I've tried so hard to come up with solutions that work but a lot of what we see is just bastardry really and so it's and I think the Australian public after that election know what I'm saying is the truth so I do think there's going to be some pressure and I but I do have sympathy that this new minister you know she's in the southeast asia at the moment and all that sort of stuff there's a lot going on on this planet but again, protecting the koala forests of the east coast of Australia, which is 20% of our continent, that would make a huge difference in climate change, in temperature, in species, in, and, you know, tourism is the, is the way. So it's taken me 30 years to learn how to articulate. I just wish even Kate Furman, I've spoken to her at length, she still has faith in the system. I don't. I don't think the system works. A part of the problem and what you've addressed is it's state by state where we do need a federal uniform approach. Well, the Senate inquiry in 2011 said the states are incapable of protecting it. No one's read that report and it probably cost $200,000 to put that inquiry on. There was three of them, Brisbane, Canberra and Melbourne. I attended them all. There was 101 submissions and I remember Senator Cameron the Scottish senator said, you know, because the rooms were filled and he said, this is the most interested Senate inquiry we've ever had. But what happened within minutes of that listing getting up, then the states, premiers, started writing to the feds and saying, you can't tell us what to do. We're going to have a memorandum of an article of understanding. So they don't even take any notice of, of strong, firm documents. That's what frustrates me too. Our biggest concern here in Victoria, and this must really concern your foundation, the fact mm -hmm. that the situation in New South Wales, Queensland and Canberra is not exactly the same as South Australian Victoria because we have large artificial populations of koalas basically trapped in bluegum plantations, but they oh, affect look. the overall population numbers. No, no. I'm going to push back on that. Look, I've been counting koalas for 33 years. And so what I say is that we have an underpopulation of trees. And when they, so I remember going to every single isolate, Snake, Snake Island, Raymond Island, French Island, Mount Eccles, every single one of them. And by and large, there was, you know, small little isolates. And then 180,000 hectares of blue gums came in. But when the governments do the numbers of koalas, and it's the same on Kangaroo Island, what they do is they, they walk into a couple of paddocks, see 10 koalas, which could be a little colony, and then they go, there's 180,000 koalas because there's 180,000 hectares. Koalas just don't work that way. So those numbers are inflated. KI, for instance, they said that 50,000 koalas died. That's just rubbish. So... We've got to get the numbers right. And I've argued strongly to, to the minister and anyone who'll listen, every koala in Australia, because of its economic worth to us, and, you know, apart from our hearts, you know, I was with a baby koala last week and it just melts your heart. If we want to exploit this thing, 
for, for billions of dollars worth of tourism and stuff to koalas, then there's going to have to be a price to pay. And I did say on a radio interview, the resources minister has to come in with the tourist minister and balance out because resources will eventually go and, and our country will be, you know, depleted of them. This is a sustainable, like Orwell said, we're the leisure continent. People will want to come to Australia to see these beautiful things. And the destruction I've seen, in fact, another interview I did yesterday, I said, I do actually think we're in ecological collapse and no one's noticed. And this, you could tell this journalist was like, oh, God, don't say that. But deep down, I know it's true. I've seen river systems and creeks that look like sewers and they'll never recover until we absolutely start letting those rivers run free again and and all those things. So there's some major decisions to be made and I think we've all got to fight hard. We do. The economics of it makes sense. I mean, at the moment, we've got about 1,700 species that are threatened in Australia. Now, oh, no, 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 no. Let me tell you, yep. that's only the vulnerable listing. That was when we when the koala was listed, I gathered up all of them. So it was 1,700 and the koala would have been 1,701. And then I worked out how many of them were actually in the, the, the forest. So there's about 1,000. But you know what? There would be vulnerable species that have never even had a nomination put in. So if you're common and you haven't had a nomination, then you're considered fine. Let me tell you, the platypus is in trouble, the wombat's in trouble, pretty much every bird species is in trouble. The system's broken, absolutely broken, because we've nominated three times. I've seen the system. Half of the people, you know, have been in the bureaucracy as long as I know. They try hard, Robert, but they, they're working with a system that just that just doesn't work. So this is why I'm so, the koala to me is such a great flagship. 20% of our continent. And when people say to me, well, Deborah, what about people's housing? How much cleared land have we got could be creating all manner of beautiful homes for people, low-cost houses? We don't need to cut any more bush down. And so the Koala Protection Act says, don't cut the trees down. It's quite simple. The poster says, no tree, no me. Yes, exactly. And also, I spent a lot of time in the 90s in America being um, mentored by all the big groups, the Air Club, Nature Conservancy, and, and I sort of looked at, you know, they've got 50 states, for goodness sake. So when I came home, it was like, we've only got six different jurisdictions. This should be possible. And the Bald Eagle Act was exactly that, don't cut the trees. But interestingly enough, it actually came in when Rachel Carson was bringing up, you know, the Silent Spring Girl that DDT was killing the, the eagles. And so the, the law did actually get through, and it was very simple. It's only about half a piece of paper. No one actually really implemented it until Pearl Harbor, because once that the war started, which was 1941, no one wanted extinct bald eagle because they used it on their general shoulders. Yes. And I've argued that in my book I wrote last year, The Koala Manifesto. So I actually went to Pearl Harbor and, and thought, how you know, what what sort of impetus could you do for the Koala Protection Act? And of course, we don't need a war, but we kept it simple. It just says start with the horse in front of the cart, and then it's time to restore and connect. And back to where your original question about the Great National Park, of course, I'm supportive of that, but about sixty percent of it is private land, and that's going to need a lot of cooperation. And a lot of private landholders in New South Wales have been really seduced, I think, you know, when they run out of forests in uh, the state forests and by 2030 under Glasgow, when we've got to stop being in those forests. I think there's going to be open slab on that private land. I really do. So we have to have a different model, don't we? This was the good thing about the idea of the National Park, Great Koala National Park, was that it replaced the logging industry with a very healthy tourism industry yes. and provided permanent jobs. And after all, that's all most people are after. Yes, I, I must confess, when I first started this job and I run the foundation like a business, none of this makes sense to me. I remember there was an activist down in Bega and he was saying it's like 
you know, $7 a ton for wood chip that was going off the shores. Why would you do this? Yeah. These exquisite forests. And I'm a Tasmanian, so what, what's happening in the Tarkon now is sickening, isn't it? And, you know, I just love Bob Brown. I noticed all his team are sitting outside Tanya Plebisic's office. Have you seen that? She, they're all there on a vigil. And, it, and in my book I've got a picture of this young woman sitting up in an angel costume up in one of the big trees, I think in the Styx Valley in Tasmania. I just wish I was that young again to be able to do that, you know, because it's, it's going to take that, isn't it? I think, I think actually they put a fire under that angel at one stage. I thought the days of forest protests were over because it seemed like politicians were talking a good talk, but they just haven't followed it up with action. No, and also, gosh, Victoria and forests, every day I open up my Twitter, I can see that there's still massive trees going down. See, the bottom line is I think that plantation forestry is not sustainable. I think it's, it just is the churn. The real money is in those big old trees. And when I saw one of the stumps that was taken down in Wild Cattle Creek, it's massive, probably five or 600 years old. And I remember too in the 90s, and honestly, I knew nothing when I started this job. <laughs> I like, <laughs> and, <laughs> and so everyone was like, Jackie, you're going to have to come into the forest. So off I went and, you know, you see this massive tree and I said, that must be very old. And he said, no, love, that's, that's, that's not an old growth tree. And I said, why? And he said, because we've logged in here before. So the definition of that particular forest at the time was if you've logged in there, it's no longer an old growth forest. So the sanitisation of the language is also sickening, isn't it? And unless you've actually seen that and heard it with your own ears, I can walk into Canberra and say all these things to a minister and they just go, God, that woman's full on. She's just crapping on here. But it's the truth and you know it is and, and all those kids who sit in the trees know it is too. Unfortunately, a lot of our politicians, not all of them, I know some very wonderful politicians, but the majority of them are like computers. You've got to punch the information into them. Yes. And, um, well, I'm sort of at the end of my tether about that. I've done too many trips to Canberra now. We have the Koala Army. Um, I don't know if you've looked at that. And we've also got this beautiful new video called the Koala Revolution. And I just think it's going to take a revolution of, I think these 12 new independents, I don't think we're quite prepared for how much chaos that's going to cause. And I think that's great because it'll just mean people are being questioned. Why are you doing that? How can you do that? What authority do you have to do that? Those people are going to do that. You know, seeing David Pocock in Canberra, you know, he locked on at Moores Creek. You know, he's actually been in the, in the uh, fray. I, I'm really excited to see what he, he produces over the coming years. Three major areas of concern that contributes to loss of habitat, agriculture, logging and housing expansion. Mm -hmm. Here in Victoria, we seem to have a bit of a unique situation, as I mentioned before, with the plantations. But we've got a conservation department that appears to be sitting on their hands, coming up with any solution to deal with the problems that they're facing. Well, look, at just recently, and I don't think it's the latest one because I think there's some animals that have been killed recently, but a couple of, about a year ago, this is where the, it's flawed. So a farmer says... I'll let you plant trees 15 years ago on my property. And so they grew and they were supposed to be a 25-year rotation, but I think at 15 they decided to take them. And this, let's say it's generic, really. So they cut them down and actually those guys didn't kill any koalas, but they left the prescribed trees. So then the farmer comes in and says, but I don't want trees back on my paddock. I want, I want to be able to go and crop it again. So he cuts the trees down. And then I don't know who killed the koalas because no one's ever really gone to the trouble of understanding it. But that's unsustainable, isn't it? Yeah. That you take that land out of food production. So I, I just think it is incredibly flawed and I think monocultures don't do anyone any good either. I think that we need young entrepreneurs who really understand the complexities here who aren't going to say, look, I'm going to make my money out of waiting 15 years for something that's going to be small. 
we need to use waste for building products and all those sorts of things. So I think we're all looking at a buggy industry while the T Ford's being made. And I do have great hope that we will see new industries. The koalas in Victoria are still, when they're out of the blue gums, are still getting run over by cars, still being ripped apart by dogs. Same in South Australia, because I have koala carers all over the country giving me their newsletters and whatever. So I think it's very easy for people to go, oh, there's so many koalas. That's probably what it looked like at White Settlement because, again, in my book, I've argued we've got the manifest of 8 million skins that went to market between 1890 and 1927. And most of them, I think, came out of Victoria and South Australia. So there's, it's rumoured that there was about 1,000 left. And we've got a before and after of Victoria and the, the whole of Western Victoria was just primary habitat. Now, when I went into the Otways the night before the Senate inquiry, I sat outside and there was this group of koalas and what was so beautiful was there's two dear little koalas sitting together and there was this great big guy bellowing, you know, like, I'm going to come and get you. And these two little girls were going, oh, you know, I'm getting all upset. Now, the only time I've ever seen that in my whole career is in a Mae Gibbs painting. I've never seen two little females sitting together. And if you think about 8 million skins, I really think the way we see koalas at the moment is an aberration. I think that's like a refugee camp. I think that there was a very robust social structure. On our website, there's a quite a great article by Anne Sharp who wrote the koala book. And when we radio tracked animals on a housing estate back in the 90s, we could see how, how really socially aware koalas are. Alpha males, alpha females, um, you know, young males coming in and getting girls pregnant. So you had genetic diversity and, and things like that. So, and I was on Stradbroke Island where they're in large, when I say large numbers, probably a hundred animals, but you can see. And, and so I'm, I'm actually proud of myself because sometimes I can walk in some places and I go, look, there's a female and there'll be a small male or there'll be an alpha male. And it's always right because it's like a family. And so I, it annoys me that our governments will not accept that koalas have social structures. And so if they did, even if they went in to do this logging, they could actually say, you know what, that's the family over there. With Once you start destroying that family structure, and I remember when I first started going to some of those areas, the big, you know, when they were translocating in large numbers, I remember one koala after the crates left, I think it was on French Island, this massive big koala just went and sat on the um, pier. And, and everyone said I was anthropomorphising, which I'm happy to do. I think that old boy lost his family. I really do. And it, it looked like refugees. And so that's one of the things that drives me crackers too. It's like if I say that to a Victorian manager or a bureaucrat, I just look at you as if you're talking double dutch. You can't have any passion. In fact, one guy was saying, you know, you've just got too much passion for this, Deborah. Yeah, right. You know, well. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, wear, yeah. wear that as a badge, honestly. Yeah, no, I do. And also now after all these years, I can see all those things when I go in the bush and it just distresses me beyond belief. I mean, even in your garden when a blue tongue befriends you or a, Water dragons, I've got water dragons who come into my swimming pool and swim with me. And, you, you know, you just think you do form relationships with them and that's what I think is that connection that Aboriginal people talk about. Animals do know that we care. I really believe that. And I think that those of us who consider ourselves to be naturalists or from a little girl, I felt like the animals used to talk to me. You know, and I always loved it. And I was a brownie and I couldn't wait to go into the bush. And I think those things are getting lost too, the way you sort of go outside and play in the bush and because, you, you know, you're too afraid to or, or something else. So I find it worrying that our little kids don't understand some of that stuff too. Well, it's organisations like the Australian Koala Foundation that provides that online content so they can try and re-establish a yes. contact with the natural environment. 
Yes, well, you know, I was at a um, 70-year celebration of one of the guide huts over in uh, Queensland just recently and there was all these little kids there and I just wanted to sort of stay there. <laughs> you know, the innocence of being at a brownie camp, you know. What can we do? We need this acting. What's oh, yeah, the chance of getting it through? Oh, I'll get it through. <laughs> I believe you. I believe you. No, I'm, I'm relentless. I will get this in. No, no, because the thing is the people, the people know what doesn't work and that's why our political leaders got told we don't trust you. Yeah. And I think, I think these 12 independents are going to even keep the new government to account too because they're in a honeymoon period right now, aren't they? But I noticed the minister has, I think, 25 coal mines that she may or may not have to approve. I feel sorry for her, Rob, you know, because I think that she's going to have to make some really hard decisions. But at some point, we've got to make them. And I just believe those industries, the buggies, we've got to get into our T Fords. We just have to. It's the last remnants of colonialism, the logging industry. It's time for us to be smarter. Well, do you know my take on that? The magic pudding, you know, that was why, that's why the magic pudding was the resources that, and, and if you remember the pudding thieves, that was Norman warning us that people want our resources, want that pudding, and it will stop coming again. It just will. And I don't know if your listeners have ever read that, but the, if you read the magic pudding again, you'll see that he understood how rich Australia was and that, that people will eventually want it and we've got to protect it and, and make it last longer and, and not sort of waste it too you know that's what annoys me about the forestry when you just see this incredible waste and the burning and then they go oh well we'll make it into char now and I mean this this winter I mean I've got an open fire because my house doesn't have any heating and this year I've only had about three fires because I've just decided to put my clothes on and Ugg boots and and I don't feel like an old pathetic old pensioner because our some our winter's about a a month long, just put a hot water bottle on my lap and all those things. We've all got to teach our grandchildren those things, that you just can't walk around in your undies expecting everything to be 25 degrees, you know. There is a cost for everything. There is. And and I think when you and I, I'm assuming we're the same age, we we knew those things because they weren't there anyway. You, you, you had to be prudent. You know, your parents said, turn the lights off, you know. <laughs> I, I think there's, I, I've still got a lot of hope though. I do. And I think, but I think us elders have to get more and more outspoken and more and more educating young ones about what is coming to them because they better be ready because it is coming. Friday Bay yesterday, if it's a truthful photograph, they had like, uh, hailstones that look like snow. At Byron? Yeah, at Byron. I just saw it a minute ago on my tweet. So, you know, something's not right, is it? Well, look, we've got the right minister in place. If ever a minister's going to step up, I don't think Tanya's ever taken a backward step. Correct. But as you pointed out, there's some tough decisions to be made. Some really tough decisions. And... And, and also that gap between any moment, you know, once you go from the buggy to the T Ford, you've, you've got to manage those that gap. And I think that's what a lot of middle managers don't know how to do in those industries. And I suppose the other thing I want to say before we part company is I'm desperately worried about underground water as well, even though this country, thank God, we've had the efforts re-energised. Re but when I was in... Western New South Wales in 2019 in May, there wasn't one drop of water in any creek. And, and I think that there is a lot of water coming up from industry, billions of litres that are being approved. And I don't think that has changed either. So in the manifesto, people might like to have a look on our website, but there's 10 things that I think are essential. And one of them is that I think we need to take the water licences off everyone and start again, as if it was a wartime, and say, are you using this water to the best of your ability and for the interest of our nation? And I, I believe about at least 60% of it is just being squandered. 
and um, and I think we're going to pay a huge price for that. And and I think also when we have these enormous rains, we can't grow a lettuce. You're on your backyard gardens because everything's too wet. So how do we manage all that into the future? And I think it is going to be hydroponics in, in cities and these big, you know, how they've got them all underground now. I mean, they're things that I think are very exciting. Um, and maybe that'll allow the wildlife on previously cleared land to sort of regenerate. But it needs to be a master plan. And I just don't see that in Canberra. I really don't. I think we, the people, have to constantly tell them. Yeah, I see, I always say to anyone who wants to win a fight, I say you have to ring that local member every day. Hello, my name's Deb Tavart. Are you going to do what I want? And if they get 100 calls like that every day, they'll take notice. But if you just go, oh, well, I'll see them again in three years' time, they're just going to do what they like. So they've got to know that that seat is there by our our pleasure. So revolution. <laughs> Look at the Koala Revolution video. It'll just inspire you. On oh, the, um, this evening. I'll sit down and watch it this evening. I it, promise, Deborah. Just Google Koala Revolution video. It's just gorgeous. We had this beautiful young graphic designer do it for us. And every now and again, I just put it on just to stir up my loins. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, when this interview goes to air, it will be reproduced as a podcast. Uh, yeah. Would you like us to link savethekoala.com as the best yeah. entry site for Thank people? You. Yes, thank you. That would be great. And then there's a link to the Koala Army on there. So, look, we've tried really hard on our website to put things succinctly, you know, the things that we think are important. But, yeah, write to your local member and say, I want a Koala Protection Act. It, just putting it in front of them, you know. Early on we had a couple of koala stories and suddenly the emails and the Facebook contacts started coming in from uh, Europe and the UK. Mm -hmm. And they are just so fanatical about supporting koala and want change in Australia. They do. And they're the ones who are going to bring tourist dollars to our shores as well. And, yeah, I think, look, I think, you know, even that new NASA images that are coming back at the moment of the, you know, you sort of think, this is so beautiful, isn't it? The whole universe. And I think we are all going to have to understand how precious mother earth is and re-energize that it into our hearts over the next five years especially i think the mega cities are a problem we've got to we've got to make people think where their food comes from we've got to make sure we don't not waste food a lot of things would simple things like that if, as citizens if we just take it a bit slower before the Koala Act comes into place, if I yeah. bump into Albo over the weekend, yeah. I'll ask him for a, a good 20% slice of the East Coast and you can just make that one big koala reserve. How's that for a deal? Exactly, exactly. And we can still grow food and build our houses amongst that. We don't have to cut everything down. No, no. That's true. It just needs but, an overall holistic approach. Yes, and really big picture thinking, yeah. Deborah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the chat. I've really enjoyed it. For more information, go to savethekoala.com. Savethekoala.com. Okay, folks, that's it for another week. Hope you're all safe well wherever you are. Till next week, this is The Wildlife.